So what I'm saying is this. There are some people who never know who they are or who they want to be until it's too late. And that is a real tragedy in my book because I always knew who I was and who I wanted to be. Always. Okay. Who wants to be on TV? There she is. Oh, look at who's look looking at, at herself. I'm Dan. And I'm Mike. So welcome back. This is the premiere episode of season seven. Season seven, Mike. I'm so excited. I didn't actually think we would make it this far. Neither did I, but but we did. No, it's it's, it's great. We had a lot of enthusiasm from, from our listeners and from each other. And we're about to begin season seven of 15 Minute Film Fanatics. If you're new to the show, the premise is that Mike and I watch movies separately, but we never talk about them until we record the podcast. So we want to thank everybody for, for listening. We want to thank everybody for subscribing. If you like the show, here's the number one thing you can do. You can leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also now subscribe to us on Letterboxd. Yeah, so we're very, very excited about this. So Letterboxd, if you don't know it, um, I assume that if you're listening to a film podcast, you do. But just in case you don't, Letterboxd is a terrific app. It's free, and it helps you track all the films you've watched it helps you track all the films you want to watch. Um, until I had Letterboxd, Mike knows this, I would just record everything in my phone, in my notes section. And then we would say, what have you seen lately? What have you seen lately? Um, Letterboxd is a great, great site. It's like Goodreads for movies. And they're not paying us, although we'd love to have them as a sponsor. They're not paying us for this. So you can follow us on Letterboxd at 15 Film. It's the same place you can follow us on Twitter. Um, it's a great, great site. It's addictive in the best way. We post the films that we're going to watch. We post the films that we, we might do an episode on and other movies we've watched that maybe we, we won't record an episode on, but just that we happen to see like on a Tuesday night. And most importantly, we want to know what you're watching. We want more viewer suggestions. You know, it's, it should be obvious to anybody who's listened to the podcast for this long, what kind of movies we like, but that doesn't mean that we're afraid to step out of our wheelhouse. Quite the opposite. We yeah. want to be turned on to new things and then give you our take on it. Yeah, last season we did a show on Senna and we did one on the Beast, which we had never would have they never were both seen. Great. And they were both great. We had so much fun. So follow us on um, Letterboxd and get the app or go on the website. It's a free website. Um, please follow us and we'll be really interested to see what you tell us to watch. So this week, our premiere episode is a Dan pick. We're going to be doing To Die For, the 1995 uh, Gus Van Zandt film based upon the novel by Joyce Maynard and with the screenplay by Buck Henry. So since I picked this film... In the tradition of the show, the other guy gets to go first. And in the first segment, we always talk about our overall impressions on the film, things that struck us generally. So, Mike, go ahead. This movie definitely grew on me. So if you've watched it, you know that it's essentially a series of interviews intercut with a narrative portion of the film, um, essentially where all the folks giving the interviews have more information than the viewer until the very last moment. Um, and so I thought that the movie was very gimmicky uh, at the start, but that's a structure that really grew on me because of the great performances in this film. I think that really what redeems this film more than anything is, is amazing performances, especially by Nicole Kidman uh, and by Joaquin Phoenix. 
either of whom I'm not sure actually know that they're in a movie. Definitely um, he doesn't. I, I feel like I feel about them the same way that I feel about Sterling Hayden. But this is, um, it's the structure of the movie is really a vehicle for great performances, right? If you think about how this movie works on paper, which is something we talked about in the podcast a lot, it's just lines on the, it's just lines on a script, you know, that are interpreted, that are picked up um, by these, by these actors, essentially talking into the void at one at one point, Nicole Kidman does actually talking to the void, but boy, does she. It's a super, super compelling movie. And I found that I could not stop watching it. Yeah, no, I agree. I think the performances are unbelievable. I mean, Nicole Kidman is so, so good in this. I mean, and I love the fact that she does something very difficult, which is she's so good at playing somebody dumb. Because, you know, dumb people are never really portrayed accurately in movies. And I don't mean like movies like Dumber and Dumber and Dumber. I mean, like somebody who's really, really not that smart, like that great bit where George Siegel is telling her the story about the reporter who wrote yes. the obscene thing. And then uh, she goes, well, who wrote the letter? <laughs> and when, when Matt Dillon says, uh, you know, how I want by my side, don't you? She goes, who? He's like, you, right? And so not only do we get those like dumb moments, but we she also does, there's things in the screenplay that reveal how dumb she is, like little things where you could see um, Suzanne, that's her name, Suzanne, trying to sound smarter than she is. Like she says, like, I turn them into the law. And at one point she goes, um, it boggles one with disbelief. <laughs> it boggles one with disbelief. And and I love it when she's doing the weather and she throws the magnet of the sun and she goes, today, was a hot one. Like she thinks that's really good TV. She thinks that's being a really good meteorologist. We we know it's bad TV. We we just cringe, but she does such a good job of convincing us that Suzanne really thinks she's something else when she does those spots. And at the same time, I think we all know people like this, or or maybe uh, if you don't know somebody like this, uh, maybe it's you uh, who have parts of your personality which are essentially just reconstructions of things that you've seen. And so obviously Suzanne right. is meant to be a caricature, but I feel like she's meant to be somewhere between a five and 7% caricature of the way that culture gets created through media, right? So me media is an exaggeration of culture, uh, but then culture becomes an exaggeration of media. And it's about the way that that spirals out of control with, with Suzanne as the prime example. Well, let's talk about media for a second. Now, now here's, I'm going to put you on the spot here. Right. This movie reminds me of two movies, one of which we've done already, one of which I don't think we have, but one of which we know we've done already, that we both love. All right. Go. What are they? Okay. So one is network. One is network, definitely. Well, let's That's talk about the network. obvious one. Let's yeah. talk about network for a second. So I thought that she was a great, like it's almost like network light. She's like another incarnation of Faye Dunaway's character, Diana, right? Like, like she's clean. Remember what can you Phoenix said? She's clean. She's clean, just like TV is clean, right? So network is 1976. This is 20 years later. But you know, I think she's the personification of TV, the way that Faye Dunaway is in network. But it's also cool because I think so, I think that Nicole Kidman's also the personification of social media. Right. She says, you're not anybody in America unless you're on TV. Well, today it's you're not anybody unless you have a million followers or something like that. You know, she says, what's the point of doing it if no one's watching? That is Instagram. That is what Instagram is about. Well, part of the point is that she she makes a moral point about it, which is she said everybody would act better if everything were recorded all the time. Right. <laughs> and the girl who's quoting her says, what I don't get is who's supposed to be watching if we're all being recorded, right? If we all become the content, who's receiving the content? And the answer is really nobody. 
because it starts to move at the speed of light such that content and experience are the same, right? That's actually what live stream means. It means yeah. content and experience have become the same. And so the movie's very prescient in that sense. Because of course, with Twitter and Facebook and Instagram, like you, you create their content for them. Like you are, you are the product that's being sold. And, and that's very much the same with network TV, right? That she, she's so determined to be on TV that um, TV is like her place in heaven. She doesn't care, <laughs> right? She doesn't care yeah. if she's on ABC or right. the local station. It's all the same because it's it's the same physical box. Right, it's TV, right? Um, so that was the first one was Network. The second film this reminded me of, and this might this might be harder to think of, but I think as soon as I say it, you'll start laughing. The King of Comedy. Yes. This, this, so if I asked you, put you on the spot, how is this movie like The King of Comedy? It's about somebody who doesn't know that they're bad. It's yeah. about somebody <laughs> who can make the content but actually can't watch it, or they're watching a version of it that only happens in their head, right? Yeah. Her being on, her being the weather lady uh, or doing whatever it is that she has to do is like his bit when he finally makes it onto the show because he's got the host held hostage. Yeah, I thought and it, it's a both. It's about people who are, are who think they're better than they are, who each commit a crime to further their career. You know, the big difference, of course, is that I think Rupert Pupkin, Robert De Niro, is your relationship him with him is a much is much different because you, you you're kind of on his side, and you you know you kind of a. Uh, you know, he's so painfully awkward that you kind of feel for him. And it's a much lighter movie. But her, she, you know, she's, of course, the ice queen. And you know what that's a function of, right? What? Screen time. She shares the screen such that the other characters also share your sympathies. Whereas I think part of the point with Rupert Pump Pumpkin is that he dominates so much of the screen time, like Hamlet in Hamlet, that yeah. it, it doesn't matter how grotesque he is. You buy into his grotesquerie. Yeah. Yeah. They're both like, it struck me like they're both like Norma Desmond from Sunset Boulevard, but without the past career, like at least Norma Desmond, like, like I am big. It's the pictures that got smaller. Like she but had a career in, in this, in but right. The pictures did actually get small, which yeah. I think is, is the point. Yeah. They don't have anything to fall back on. So, all right, great. So in part two, we'll talk about our favorite moments. I'll see you there. Okay. Welcome back. So if you're new to the show in part two, what we like to do is talk about uh, our favorite moments or moments that we think point towards the themes of the film as a whole. So Dan, why don't you get us started? Well, the famous moment that people will remember is when they're playing Sweet Home Alabama and she's out there dancing in the rain and Joaquin Phoenix is staring at her and, and talking about the staring in this movie, staring her. And that's a great moment that epitomizes the film, not just because he's leering at her the way she wants to be leered at, but he's watching her through a screen. I think that's terrific that even it's the windshield, but again, she is framed through that screen. She's, she's always performing for him to get what she wants. And of course, that's what TV does. It performs for you. It seduces you to, to, to get you to do what it wants. I think it would be easy to fall into a trap. I think if the staring was two or three seconds or even four seconds long, you would say this film doesn't understand its own interpretation of the gaze. But this film says, no, I understand it much better than you. And you're going to gaze at the gaze until you look away before he looks away. Yeah, because you get caught up in the gaze as well, because because she is very compelling. She you know, she, it's no accident that Nicole Kidman plays her. I mean, she, when she's doing those scenes where she's talking right to the camera and her hair is perfect, that she has these great. I mean, like there is she's obviously a very compelling person to look at. But there I think it's interesting because she's performing for Joaquin Phoenix. Uh, what was your moment? So with all these performances going on, the movie does cheat in that it has 
at least one moment wherein the emotion is deeply felt and genuine. Do you know what moment I'm talking about? No. It's when his sister gets the call that he's oh, been killed and you yes. don't hear what's hap- what happens on the other side of the phone. And I think that especially for this movie, it would be very easy for that moment to be shrill rather than genuine. But it's kind of like the key or archstone moment of the movie because it's about somebody who obviously is putting on a performance, but is going to trick you into believing that that emotion is genuine. I think it's some of the best acting in the entire film. And I was shocked that this movie could get away with it because you could see a lot of ways in which this movie could get very twee or self-important because it's in on the joke Mm -hmm. and you're not. But right. When you, when you kill a character, this movie makes that very real for you because of its impact on another character. Yeah. And you, you have to see and experience the death through another performance, but in a movie that's all about performances and how fake this all is. Yeah. And I thought it was beautiful what they got away with. But it, again, that it was just a redemptive moment based on one actress's ability to, to do what she's paid to do. Ileana Douglas, yeah, she's terrific because you're right. The movie, the movie runs the risk constantly of becoming too, too self-aware and too cute. But in that moment, to really write that moment and earn it and to get your stomach to hurt the way it does, and that it, it's almost like for like five minutes you're in a different movie and then you go back to this one. And but her performance, I mean, her performance works that way very much through the entire film, right? It's very yeah. difficult to remember that she's not act like she's not Matt Dillon's sister. She's not from Boston. She may or may not be Italian, but she has a genuineness that I think balances the entire movie. It's not, and it's not by coincidence that she's one of the first interviews yeah. um, when they turn it on, right? You find out why she's ice skating. Uh, and then, and then of course, she's the one ice skating over the pond <laughs> right. where they, where they put her body, which is a really nice way to wrap things up. But there's a lot of ways in which her performance holds the movie together because it is the kind of performance that you would expect from what I'll call a classical film. Um, but she pulls it off in the midst of all this postmodern trickery and it, and it works without irony. Yeah. Without irony. That's very, very true. All right. Well, you mentioned the ending. So we'll talk about that in part three. I'll see you there. Okay. So in part three, we like to talk about the title or the ending or the key takeaways of the film. Dan, do you have anything on the title? Well, I mean, the title, you know, of course, you know, she is to die for, or at least, you know, uh, she's to kill for, as Joaquin Phoenix finds out. But I think it's also cool because it's the movie's about what she dies for. She dies for the chance to be on TV. She dies for this dream that she can go on there and talk about, you know, if Gorbachev didn't have the birthmark or if Lady, or, or I want to have Lady Diana's wedding dress or something like that. I mean, that's why she ends up under the ice. That's what, that's what her life was for. That's what it meant. Right. She believes in eternal life, in a sense. She (laughs) believes that she will be frozen in time if she becomes part of the media, which is, of course, what she gets. Well, what's great about this, too, is that the movie, I think it's great because the movie, going back to what you said in part two, uses the very medium it attacks and it it. It makes a mockery of TV, but it it does a mockery like um, figuratively where it, it makes fun of it. But it also mimics it. It mocks it perfectly. And it's and you know that it's mocking it. You know it's an imitation of a fake documentary. Like you know you're watching two movies at once, right? There's the there's the movie of the crime being committed, and then there's all the interviews, right? So you get these two movies at once. You know that Nicole Kidman is an actress, you know that Matt, you know, you know all these things, but it's still so compelling and you still get drawn in. So Gus Van Sant shows you the power of that. He shows you that, yeah, I'm gonna do a fake dateline show, I'm gonna do a fake 2020. 
I'm going to do a fake America's Most Wanted, and you're going to know it's fake, and I'm even going to be kind of smart-assed about it, but it's still going to pull you in, and you're still going to find yourself wanting to know what happens next. I think the beauty, especially watching this movie 20 years later, is that what was being parodied at the time was music videos or MTV or the real world, right? Which, which as we know, is not even the first 2% of the rabbit hole, you know, watching from, from 2022. And so I think in a weird way, this is one of those movies that becomes more charming for me after the fact. I'm not sure that if I were in my early 20s, in the, in the late 90s, that I would have been as charmed by this movie. But there's something about it now that allows me to tolerate the taste of its satire, but also enjoy what's genuine about it. And in a certain way, it also looks cute and naive, right? I think it, it doesn't look so self-aware from our perspective. And in that way, the movie's aged well, or it's mm -hmm. aged into some of its performances. I mean, I also love how Lydia at the end um, becomes a TV star. Like the last person in the film that's going to, you expect to become the TV star. You know, she's frumpy. She's the opposite of Nicole Kidman. She's emo she's all insecure. I thought we were friends. We just see her image multiplied over and over and over. You know, she's the opposite of Nicole Kidman, but she wins in a sense. Like she gets what Suzanne wants. And it's also the second film we've done that ends with a Donovan song. That is true. Uh, the first, the first being Zodiac. Being Zodiac, yeah. I what did you, what that. did you make of his sister skating over her on the ice? I, I don't necessarily have a complete reading of it, but it's almost as though the sister is the is the only person who enjoys any taste of revenge because the the parents, like both sets of parents, are totally at a loss for words to say what's happening. The younger generation is is too lost in having become famous or being in jail to articulate anything. And there, there's nothing that can be verbally articulated, right? It's, it literally ends with a dance and with Donovan's weird song. That's what I thought. The parents can only, can only reconcile to whatever degree they do on a talk show. Remember, they're on like that Jerry Springer show. So that's the only way they can come together. Joaquin Phoenix just walks around in a living you know, nightmare in, in the prison with his haircut. He so, is a living nightmare. Yeah, he is. So I thought at the end, it was a way to go beyond words and just have her skating over. And she knows where she is. And that I, I, you know, that's her revenge at the end. And the song is a joke about Suzanne, of course. But I think at the end, she gets the kind of the last laugh skating, skating, literally skating over her. Media is like the three witches from Macbeth, you know, just because Macbeth dies doesn't necessarily mean the witches lose, you know, which is how I kind of read the Donovan song at the end, right? She, Suzanne is gone. The sister is, is skating. Matt Dillon is dead. The parents have found whatever peace they can, but the season of the witches is the media culture. <laughs> and, and so that's why I think that the movie ages so well. I think yeah. the movie is almost slightly aware of its own naivete or the fact that by the time that you actually make the movie, and then release it, probably reality TV or culture at the time has already done something that makes your movie obsolete. And so there's there's some kind of taste of that obsolescence that, as I, I think you said correctly, is beyond words or beyond articulation. Okay, but it's but it sticks around the same way network does. Like, the, you know, the, 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 the plot device and the things network worries about aren't necessarily what we were about today, but but Network was right on the big things. It was right about like the Mousley Tongue Hour and we're going to kill somebody on TV and, and, and the almighty dollar and the Ned Beatty scene. It, it was right about the big things. The machinations of the plot and whether it's ABC versus NBC. Yeah, in Network, there's no streaming. There's there's no HBO. There's, the internet's not invented yet, but the big things it's right about. And I think that that's true for To Die For as well. 
Yeah, I, I think it's it's funny because I was watching the verdict from the Elizabeth Holmes trial at the same time as I was watching uh, this to die for. And so, of course, the obvious parallels of walking to and from the courthouse and what you're wearing yeah. in the media train. That's her performance. You, everything's pretty much spot on. Yeah, because that's what she does. Her performance as the grieving widow. And she says that he had a cocaine problem. Well, if you check this movie out, we hope you enjoyed it as much as we did. Certainly, it's it's a weird one. It's probably one that you haven't seen but it's definitely worth 90 minutes of your time. So thanks everyone for listening. We're so excited for season seven. Follow us on Letterboxd again at 15 Minute Film, 15 MIN Film. It's the same place you can follow us on Twitter. Please check out our movies. Please let us know what to watch and please subscribe. Thanks everybody. We'll see you next time.